Welcome to episode 56 of the MMA Rundown Podcast, and we finally have live fights back. So, obviously, the majority of this podcast is going to be talking about what happened at UFC 249. I'll be recapping the main event between Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson, talking about Henry Cejudo's win and then subsequent retirement from MMA against Dominic Cruz, recap the entire UFC 249 card. Uh, from there, I'll talk about Daniel Cormier um, while he was doing a lot of his commentary. Because there were no fans in the arena screaming, a lot of the fighters could hear what he was saying in the cage, and a couple of them, Carlos Barza and also Greg Hardy, mentioned that some of the things that he was talking about uh, were things they took into account, and they made adjustments based off of them, were able to pick up wins as a result, so I'll talk about that. I also will talk about Jacare Souza, who was supposed to fight Uriah Hall. Surprisingly, with there being 24 athletes on the card, if you look at how common it is for positive tests to come up, you sort of would have expected a couple guys to test positive. I guess technically because it was Jacare in his corner, there were a few people who were tested who tested positive, but surprisingly, Jacare was the only fighter who did test positive, so his fight was taken off, so I'll talk about that situation, um, how he handled everything leading up to it, and then how the UFC handled it once they found out that he had tested positive. From there, I have a couple of cards to preview, so I'll preview the 513 card, which is going to be the Anthony Smith Glover Teixeira card on Thursday, or on the 13th, I believe is Thursday, let me think, if the 16th is Saturday, 15th, Friday, 14th, Thursday, so Wednesday, I guess. Oh, so that's coming up pretty soon. So I'll preview that card. I will also do a lighter preview of the 516 card. I haven't yet decided, because obviously it's not common for there to be Wednesday cards. Uh, usually, when I do this podcast, it's a day after the fights. That's why it's usually coming out on a Sunday when the fights are on a Saturday. So I may do a Thursday podcast as well. I just ha have to see how things work out with that. Maybe just do it Wednesday night and just do like a, a fight-focused one. Maybe just do a fight recap. Um, so just in case I'm going to have another podcast, I'm not going to go super in-depth on the 516 card. Uh, but I will preview the card and just talk about every single fight that's going to be on it. And then the last thing to talk about is going to be another combat sport returning coming up this week, and that's going to be Fight to Win uh, for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I'll talk about a couple of the fights that they have uh, headlining their cards, but they're going to have a card on 515 on Friday and then a card on 516 on Saturday. Um, so hopefully for them they're not running at the exact same time as the UFC, but it's good to see that competitive Jiu-Jitsu is coming back as well, and hopefully... With the UFC coming back and with the show going pretty well, uh, as far as negatives, we're probably not going to hear a whole lot of negative for another couple of weeks, worst case scenario, because that's how long it usually takes the disease to, to really affect people really badly. But in the meantime, it looks like everything worked out well. It uh, looks like the UFC did a good job there. A lot of positivity around it. It was really nice to see a lot of the sports world uh, without anything else to watch on a Saturday night to be focusing on the UFC. And I was, I was pretty proud of the sport to, to see that all happen. So back to the top, we have the main event between Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson. Prior to this fight, and there's a lot of time to talk about this fight because it was scheduled for quite a while, my best guess as to how this fight was going to go was that it was going to be difficult for Ferguson early on for sure because Ferguson tends to leave his lead hand down and will get clipped with right hands fairly often. And Justin Gaethje is very good about setting up those shots. So I felt as though it was very likely that Gaethje was going to land at least a couple really hard overhand rights. And it would be interesting to see how Ferguson was able to recover. To my surprise, Ferguson did a very good job of recovering. He was stumbling around a lot less in this fight than he was in some fights against guys like Lando Venata and Anthony Pettis, guys who typically aren't known to punch as hard as Gaethje. There are a few different reasons, I believe, why this was the case. Um, one of them was that it seemed as though Ferguson was well aware of the fact that he tends to get hit with a lot of right hands and that Gaethje was going to be looking for him. And rather than his usual strategy of coming out, and constantly walking forward to the point where the center of the octagon would constantly be behind him. In the first round of this fight, oftentimes the center of the octagon was in front of him. He was backing up a decent amount. 
uh, was sort of coming in, coming out, coming in, coming out. Wasn't necessarily just coming forward, um, just coming straight ahead as he often does. Um, also, was paying a lot of attention to what Justin was doing. Was using pretty good head movement to get out of the way of a lot of the big right hands. Um, was bringing his hands up occasionally to block. Uh, but when he was getting hit, he was also rolling with them too. So even though Gaethje was able to land some pretty big shots early on, Ferguson did a decent job of rolling with him, and he, he kind of was aware they were coming, not aware enough to where he was able to get out of the way, but at least was aware enough to where he could kind of react to it, at least roll with it and not take the full damage. Um, but they, they were stinging him hard enough to the point where he wasn't very comfortable just moving straight forward and kind of eating him and pressing forward with his own offense, as he often does with other guys. And a lot of people, myself included, thought that as this fight went on, um, Ferguson would wear on Gaethje. Uh, the reason why that really didn't take place, though, is because the shots that Gaethje was landing were, were doing enough to keep Ferguson from trying to constantly move forward. So even though Ferguson was able to withstand those early shots, he was kind of at a point where he wasn't landing with an... He, he just wasn't putting forth enough damage himself to back Gaethje up. And just taking the shots as he walked forward, he, he could tell it wasn't going to be a good idea for him because he was going to eventually go down. Um, so he kind of had to be a little bit... Um, a little bit more cautious than he generally is, and it, it sort of took away from his game plan of just kind of wearing on guys as, as the fight goes on. One of the things that surprised me from Gaethje, in a positive way for Gaethje, is that not only was the right hand a big weapon for him, but the left hook was also a very big weapon for him. He was very quick with it, uh, had really good head movement. The leg kicks, a typical thing for him. I kind of figure that over time, it, it'd be hard to say that they're going to be super effective. Uh, also with Ferguson, Ferguson's not a guy like Dominic Cruz where he's constantly like shooting in and out, shooting in and out of the pocket. Um, Ferguson sometimes will just plod forward, so while it is obviously helpful to chop down on your opponent's legs, with a guy who doesn't move his feet as much as um, some other guys like Tony Ferguson, is it going to be as as effective over the course of the fight? It's kind of hard to tell. It, it seemed like it definitely had an effect. Um, some of the times when Ferguson was stumbling around, it's kind of hard to tell if it was because he was rocked or if it's because his legs were really badly beat up. Obviously, he, uh, from checking kicks, he had a pretty bad cut on his shin and was bleeding for much of the fight, but for Justin Gaethje, he did a really good job of picking his spots here. Um, when Ferguson was pushing forward, uh, Gaethje would would come into him and land some big shots to get, get Ferguson off of him. Um, there were some moments where Ferguson was able to push Gaethje back, but Gaethje, in addition to landing big shots when Ferguson was coming in, also did a really good job with his footwork to circle out and get out of the way. And so over the course of the fight, Ferguson was just eating huge shot after huge shot. In some ways, it was kind of getting to a point where it reminded me of some bad boxing fights, where a fighter just takes so many shots, but they just won't go down, and their corner just isn't quite ready to throw in the towel, and as a result, they they sort of take a little, a little too much damage and have a hard time recovering after the fight. I was getting a little bit worried for Tony that that might be the case. Obviously, I'm talking to you right now on Sunday. I don't know exactly what the case is with Ferguson. I, I would hope that if there was something bad that had happened, we would know about it by now, and the fact that we don't know of any long-lasting issues for him, then that means that he's going to be okay. Um, but it was kind of getting worrisome that he was taking so many big shots, not going down and continuing to move forward. And when Herb Dean finally decided to stop the fight, it was one of those things where the way that the stoppage looked, where he kind of like shook his head out, uh, it looked as though he might have broken his nose at first. Um, but then after the second shot landed and Ferguson was starting to move around, was he still defending himself? Yes, but it was one of those things where he just taken so many shots over the course of the fight. He had chances to prove that he could work his way back into it. Outside of the big uppercut at the end of the second round, he really wasn't putting forward enough fight-altering offense. So at that point, I was perfectly fine with Herb Dean stopping the fight. I think one of the interesting things to look back at, though, is that when I was watching the fight, I had it three rounds to one for Gaethje heading into the fifth. When you look at the stats on it, 
Ferguson actually landed more shots in every single round except for the fifth round. Um, I don't know what the judges' scorecards would have been had this gone there. Uh, given how hard uh, Gaethje was throwing, you would figure that even though he landed a few less shots per round, that because of how damaging the shots were, he still would have been fine and he still would have won had this gone to a decision. But I think it is kind of interesting that the numbers worked out that way. Uh, but either way, like I mentioned before, this is not an easy matchup for just, for Tony Ferguson, um, especially at the top of a division where you have so many skilled guys like White White. It's very difficult to have a guy who has a skill set that's just going to run through everyone at the top of the division. And for Ferguson, his skill set is going to get through most guys at the top of the division. Uh, Gaethje's a very difficult matchup for him. Is it a winnable matchup for him? Yes, but it was a very difficult matchup. And unfortunately for him, this fight didn't go his way. And so now he's in a position where hopefully he takes some time and heals up. I don't want to see him fighting in the next three months for sure. Uh, six months might be pushing a little bit. Now, granted, with him, uh, with the way that his contract negotiations often go, even if the UFC had a fight for him for by the time it would take for him to actually agree to it, I don't know that that would be within six months, but I, would, I want to see him get some time. If he was able to go right now, a fight between him, him and Dustin Poirier would be really really interesting. I know Poirier was supposed to fight against Dan Hooker, uh, but the event that that was supposed to be on got canceled. I don't know if they're looking to make Poirier Hooker at another time or if they're just going to separate those two. Uh, but that definitely would have been an interesting fight for Justin Gaethje. Um, I, I guess I'll take it from the Khabib angle. From the Khabib angle, a lot of fans have been wanting to see Khabib fight against a really good wrestler, um, and also want to see him fight against someone who's really good off of their back. With Ferguson, you were kind of getting a hybrid of that, where you had a guy who you knew could outstrike Khabib, you had a guy who you knew Khabib would have a difficult time taking down and holding down, you had a guy who you knew if Khabib took him down would offer some threats off of his back. We're not going to get that exact matchup now with Gaethje, but with Gaethje, we're going to get a, a more technical, a more dangerous striker than what we have with Tony Ferguson. Uh, we're going to get a guy who, I guess you could say, has a better wrestling pedigree than Tony Ferguson, uh, with Gaethje being a Division One All-American, as I had mentioned last week. It's not as though Gaethje was like constantly a top-eight guy in his weight class, but he had a very strong performance at the national tournament, and in wrestling, All-American status isn't a full-season thing. It's just based off of the results in the national tournament. Now, granted... To qualify for the national tournament, you have to put together a pretty strong season. But once you're qualified, you could be the number one guy in the year in the nation all year, um, go undefeated, and then get badly injured in the first round, and you're not an All-American that year. Whereas you could be a guy who was like six wins, four losses in every ten matches, but put together a really strong tournament, and all of a sudden you are an All-American, and get you kind of fit that bill a little bit more. I, I think his record heading into the junior year tournament that he All-American was like 29 and 14. Um, and, and again, that's not to say that Gaethje's a bad wrestler. To have a, a positive record in Division One wrestling is a big deal. Um, to have wins in the Division One national tournament, big deal. To win enough to the point where you're an All-American in the Division One national tournament, that's a really big deal. Um, for Tony Ferguson, he, I believe he was a multiple-time national champion, but in Division II. Um, granted, there are Division Two or lower division national champions who get recruited into Division One and All-American uh, later on in their career. Is it possible that Tony Ferguson could have been a Division One All-American had he gone to a Division One school? That I I really couldn't tell you, but I don't think that there's a massive gap in the wrestling between Gaethje and Ferguson. I think is the point that I'm getting at, and maybe more importantly, given that Gaethje doesn't use his hasn't had to use his wrestling a ton in MMA, it's going to be interesting to see in, in a fight with Khabib how he's going to use his wrestling. Now, obviously, I don't think that Gaethje's going to decide. You know what? I'm going to beat Khabib the way that Khabib beats everyone else, and I don't see I don't think that Gaethje's going to run in there or shoot a double leg and try to fight could be from top the entire time if Gaethje's going to use his wrestling in that fight it's mostly going to be to keep Khabib off of him and if Khabib takes him down it's going to be uh, trying to work his way back up to his feet uh, but 
is it sad that we're not getting Tony versus Khabib? It's definitely sad that we're not getting it. Um, but this fight that we have here, though, with Justin Gaethje and Khabib Nurmagomedov is a very interesting fight as well. It, it's that matchup that we've been waiting for where it's, Khabib's going to have to fight a high-level wrestler who is a better striker than him. It's a matchup we wanted to see for a while. Uh, Michael Chandler is another name that we've he heard in terms of guys who have that sort of skill set that might be difficult for Khabib to fight. Between Justin Gaethje and Michael Chandler, Michael Chandler had a better Division One wrestling career than Justin Gaethje had. Justin Gaethje's striking is probably a little bit crisper and more technical than Michael Chandler's is. Hopefully, hopefully this is going to be a tough fight for Khabib Nurmagomedov. Hopefully we're going to learn a lot from it. But it's really going to be interesting to see if Khabib has trouble taking Gaethje down or if he has trouble holding him down, how the later rounds of this fight are going to look. Or if, I mean, and this is definitely a possibility, if, if Gaethje's able to land something big early on in the fight, uh, if he can just knock out Khabib really quickly, that could also be a, an interesting matchup. But again, style-wise, Gaethje offered a tough matchup for Tony Ferguson. He offers a difficult matchup for Khabib Nurmagomedov too. And while we're not going to get the fight that we wanted, this is going to be an excellent fight, and it's one that a lot of people are going to be trying to look into. A lot of people are going to be looking for old Northern Colorado wrestling matches from Justin Gaethje to try to break this down. Um, but it, it's definitely going to be fun. Sad that we're not getting the Khabib versus Tony fight after five different times of it being canceled. It, is it canceled for good now? I don't know about that. Tony's in, in some ways similar to Henry Cejudo has sort of talked about his retirement at, at different points. Or did I say Tony? Khabib has been talking about his retirement. Uh, so for Khabib... Even if he still holds the title, and even if Tony works his way back to the title, is Khabib still going to be there by the time that Tony earns his title shot? That can be hard to say. I would think for Tony, especially if he gets a top five guy in his return and he gets a dominant win there, he can't be that far off of getting back into the title picture, but you would figure for Khabib, now he's got Gaethje on his plate. He's most likely going to have Connor on his plate unless Connor fights someone else and loses, and they just can't make that fight. Um, but that's a fight that they definitely want to make, so hopefully we didn't lose the Tony versus Khabib fight forever, but... Justin versus um, Khabib is still going to be a great fight, and I'm pretty happy we're going to get that. Next fight on the card was Henry Cejudo versus Dominic Cruz. This fight really... It, it was just really an interesting fight to think about, just in terms of what we've seen from Henry in the past versus what we've seen from Cruz in the past with Cruz because it had been so long since he'd last fought. There's a lot left to the imagination in terms of what his game has done to improve over that time. Uh, has he gotten really good at jiu-jitsu over that time? Uh, has he added a lot of new things to his striking over that time? Uh, so there's a lot of curiosity there. Uh, but you figured based off of the Henry, best based off of the Henry we've seen in the past, the Henry that oftentimes with his striking likes to lead with his right hand, um, isn't a huge kicker. Uh, once he gets into the clinch, he's pretty effective as well with his knees. You, you kind of figure that Dominic Cruz is going to scout that out. He would avoid the right hand for the most part, and he'd be able to pick apart Henry for for much of the fight. And something that really stuck out to me immediately when they were between fights between the Francis Ngannou fight and, and this fight, is that they showed Henry in back with shin pads on, practicing kicks. And it's not that Henry hasn't used kicks in the past, but it was pretty evident at that exact point that kicks were going to be a big part of the game plan for Henry Cejudo here. And that makes sense. With, with Dominic Cruz, a guy who moves as much as he does, if you can really be effective with leg kicks and limit that movement, it's going to help you out a lot. Uh, it was helping out Teacher Dillashaw in his title fight that he eventually lost by split decision. Um, one of the things that you heard after that fight was over is that he wished he had gone to the leg kick sooner and been more aggressive with them. Uh, so it was pretty obvious that Henry Cejudo was making an adjustment to what we normally see from him. And that adjustment was pretty effective, especially in the first round. I think that Henry Cejudo won that first round. That uh, was pretty effective in the leg kicks. Uh, was making it difficult for Cruz to move around. Uh, was landing some nice shots as well, but 
he was definitely making it difficult for Dominic Cruz to find a rhythm. Second round begins. Cruz is starting to make some better adjustments, though. He, he's starting to get his reads off, um, doing a better job of checking the leg kicks. And towards the end of the round, they have a headbutt. Um, that opens up a huge cut on Henry Cejudo's head. And it reminded me of the situation with the Cody Garbrandt fight where Dominic Cruz afterwards had talked about how after he had gotten busted up, I think it might have been a headbutt in that fight as well, that it forced him to be a lot more aggressive because he understood that the optics were not good for him. Uh, and that also over time it would it, it would really affect his fight or his ability to fight at his best. So for Henry Cejudo, after he gets busted open by a headbutt, he also decides that he wants to come out a lot more aggressive. Um, it's kind of hard to tell if he was perfect was purposely timing an ear if he was just throwing a body kick and Cruz happened to just duck into it at the wrong time. Um, but Cruz comes in, uh, ducks right into a knee, gets dropped, is facing Henry Cejudo. And I guess before I recap this exact moment, I think it's worth recapping a moment that happened in the first round where Henry Cejudo took Dominic Cruz down. And what was pretty clear in that moment is that Dominic Cruz's game plan in this fight is that if you do get taken down, your way back to your feet is not going to be by playing guard, trying to get to butterfly guard again, to foot on hips and kicking away. Um, the way to get back up is to treat it like a folk-style wrestling match, which means to turtle, uh, face away from him, try to get back up to your feet, um, break the hands, and then face into him. Uh, so he was able to do that successfully, and after getting taken down early in the first round, was able to get get right back up. And I think that in terms in wrestling terms, Cejudo might have had like five seconds of riding time, if that, uh, before Cruz was able to get away. Uh, so in this case, uh, Cruz gets dropped by that knee and is at a point now where he has Cejudo coming after him while he's on the ground and Cruz wants to get up. So because Cruz does not want to be playing off of his back against Henry Cejudo, decides, okay, well, the folk-style wrestling process is going to be you're going to turtle, you're going to stand back up, and then you're going to break grips, face into him, and, and that's going to be how you get back up. So it gets dropped. Uh, Cejudo just comes charging in. Cruz goes to turtle. And from there... When you're trying to build your way back up, if you keep your hands up where you're blocking your face, it's going to be tough to, to really get back up, obviously. Um, you kind of have to have your arms spread out a little bit so you can kind of push off and work your way back up. So Cruz's focus was just on getting back up to his feet. Uh, so he's got his hands away from his face. And one of the things that Henry Cejudo does a really good job of, and it's part of the reason why both the TJ Dillashaw fight and this fight had his opponents kind of like, hey, look, I was still there. Like, why'd you stop the fight? is that when Cejudo has a guy hurt, he comes, swarms in, and throws just incredibly fast, rapid punches. Uh, it's not as though his goal is necessarily to pin you down and just keep hitting you until you go unconscious. For him, it's just like, I bet the ref is probably looking at this like like he wants to stop the fight. I'm going to throw as many strikes in here as I can and try to convince him to do so. And that's what Cejudo did. He just came in and just started um, flailing away with his left hand. Um, Cruz was still moving, but for Cruz... He was trying to use the fence to get up, which makes sense, but also, unfortunately for him, the fence was to his right, and Cejudo, and Cejudo's left hand was going left to right. Uh, so as as Cruz would move towards the fence, it would, in some ways you could say, okay, that's because Cruz was actually trying to go to his right, but in, some, in other ways you could say, well, that's because he was getting his head punched in that direction. That's where his body was moving as a result. Um, but as he's working his way back up, uh, Keith Peterson, the ref, steps in and stops the fight. In hindsight, this is a bad stoppage. In the moment, which is what's being fair to Keith Peterson, I have a hard time being that upset with him. So here's the thing. When you're making a stoppage, especially in a TKO, uh, effectively what a TKO stoppage is, is it's a prediction by the ref that is saying, if I do not step in and stop the fight right now, more damage, more unanswered damage, more so, is going to be um, given to the fighter who I'm protecting right now. 
Um, so the idea is is that if he doesn't step in, then Cruz is going to just keep getting keep taking shots. He's not going to be able to defend, and he's going to eat them all clean. He's not going to be able to improve his position. So I have to step in now to make sure that that isn't the case. If a fighter is in a position where they can improve their position and get out of there, then there really isn't a need to step in. So Peterson, on one hand, what's tricky about this is that if you understand that Dominic Cruz's goal in terms of getting back up is to treat it like a folk-style wrestling match, um, to turtle, to work his way back up to his feet, and then to try to break grips from there, if you understand that, then it, it, it makes sense what Dominic Cruz is doing there. Uh, but with that being said, you still have a guy who got dropped with a legitimate shot, a guy who is in a turtle position, uh, with his hands not blocking the punches, eats a punch, eats a punch, eats a punch. Like, at, at some point, punch to punch, if, if the guy hasn't already gotten up, you have to get to a point where you're predicting, is he going to continue to eat more punches while he's on the ground, or is he actually going to be able to get back up? And given that he ate, like, three or four punches at least before he had started to rise, Keith Pearson's kind of in the spot where, in the moment, and, and things are happening fast, he has to predict, is Cruz going to just keep eating these on the ground, or is he actually going to be able to get back up? And he made the decision that he felt that Cruz was not going to be able to get back up and he was going to keep eating those shots uh, without blocking him on the ground. So that's when he stepped in. Again, it's easy for us to look back at this after the stoppage happened and be like, oh, well, obviously Cruz was getting back up. Uh, but it looked like one of those things where once Peterson's mind was made up that Cruz was just eating too many shots and wasn't going to be able to improve his position, once he had started to move in, that's when Cruz was starting to get back up. And it's sort of tough where if you're already in the motion of going in to stop the fight to sort of stop yourself and pull back and, and let him go. And for Peterson, it looks like he was kind of in that spot where Cruz was rising just as Peterson was coming in. And he was like, you know what? I, I've made my decision. I'm going to stop it right here. So for for the post-fight press conference, Henry, or, um, Dominic Cruz had mentioned that he felt like Peterson was a terrible ref. He didn't want to have P Keith Peterson be his ref. That he smelled of alcohol and cigarettes. Um, that's one of those things where it's going to be tough to substantiate. Now, I did see another coach, Eric Nixick, who is a, a coach at Extreme Couture. He's kind of like, yeah... Peterson does smell like that, but that's how he's always smelled. That's just kind of who he is. Like he, at least with the cigarettes, like he likes to smoke. Um, smoking cigarettes doesn't make you any worse of a referee. And Keith Peterson's been a pretty good referee for as long as I've seen him handle fights. Um, so to say that, like he's he's not taking his job seriously, or he's he's putting himself in a position where he can make bad calls. I don't know that that's necessarily fair. I can understand why Dominic Cruz is upset. Uh, Cruz was in a position where he wasn't ranked into this heading into this fight. Uh, it was a great opportunity that was given to him. Uh, and it's one of those things where if you win, then great. You're the Bantamweight champion, and now you're at the top of the division. Um, you can keep defending your title. You can get championship money. But if you lose, I mean, how close is Dominic Cruz really to another title shot at this point, even though some could argue that it was a, a difficult stoppage to make? Like, you've got other guys who are, who are more deserving in the first place. Uh, you're, you're definitely going to have Peter Yan in the next title fight. Uh, he's probably going to be fighting Sterling. I would hope that Sterling's the guy who gets that shot. Uh, you got Sandhagen towards the top of the division. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what, what's next for Jose Aldo, but you'd figure Aldo's going to get a bigger opportunity than Dominic Cruz, at least in his next fight, unless the two fight each other, which I think would be a pretty interesting matchup if they made it. Um, but for Cruz, the difference between winning and losing here is a really big deal, both in terms of money and in terms of his route to becoming a champion. So I can understand the frustration from him. Uh, if I was in Dominic Cruz's shoes, I would be very upset that the referee is stopping the fight just as I'm standing up. Uh, and again, I haven't even mentioned the time on the clock, which I don't think is necessarily worth mentioning because when you're in there, you, you don't have like a clock in front. Of you. It's not like you're watching the same thing that the fans are watching where you have a clock in the bottom left corner. Like when you're there, you're just seeing the action in front of you. And if the action in front of you is telling you that the guy who's on bottom isn't improving his position and is just getting beat on, 
you, you kind of have to step in regardless of what the time is. Um, so it, it's just tough because I, I feel like Dominic Cruz, to an extent, should he be upset that the fight was stopped when he was defending himself and when he was improving position? Yes. Um, is Keith Pearson at fault for making a bad decision here? Because his decisions have to be made in the moment, I have a hard time saying that it was. Obviously, we know that as he was stepping in, that Dominic Cruz was improving his position. But it's one of those things where it's, it's just in in the moment, it's so hard to say. And I, I just really have a hard time getting on Keith Peterson for making a, a, a huge error here. Obviously, as Cruz mentioned, and look, if you take a big knee like that and you get dropped, uh, you, you're asking for trouble. But it, it's tough. It's it, it's hard. I, I, feel, I feel bad for Cruz. In some ways, I feel bad for the ref as well because... He's sort of in this difficult situation there where, in hindsight, we know that Cruz has gotten up, but let's just say that Cruz hadn't gotten up after taking four or five shots where he wasn't blocking the punches on the ground. Uh, and we watch the end of the round. Let's just say it goes to the end of the round. So we have Cejudo knock him down with a head kick. We knock him down with a knee. Uh, Cruz has his hands away from his head, takes five, six, seven. Let's say it's eight punches by the time the round ends and hadn't yet stood up. Are we like what are, what are we saying about Peterson at that point? Like, are we saying okay, well maybe now you should stop the fight between rounds? Are we saying wow, he definitely should have stopped that fight? Henry Cejudo got screwed. Like, it's just one of those situations where it's tough to make a decision that everyone's going to agree with at that point, um, both in terms of the timing and in terms of the, the specific position that there was. Plus, it's a title fight, so people want to see these fights go on a little bit longer than other fights. Uh, so, am I upset with Peterson? I mean. I, I, I just can't be. I, I really can't be. Uh, another story that came out of that, though, was Henry Cejudo afterwards announced his retirement from MMA. This is very interesting in terms of what's actually meant by this. So his explanation in the cage was that he's been a high-level competitive athlete since he's been 11. Uh, much of his life has just been focused around being an athlete. Uh, he, he's kind of tired of it. He wants to move on. Uh, he has a girlfriend now that he likes, and he wants to start a family. It, it It's tough to me because there are multiple reasons listed there. I would imagine that not all of the reasons have the exact same weight on them. Um, the part where he mentioned having a girlfriend wanting to start a family I think is kind of interesting because it doesn't sound as though he was making an announcement that she's pregnant. Uh, pregnancy takes nine months as well. Um, so it, it's sort of this question where if, if the family part was was that big of a deal you would figure that he still has at least like nine months if not a year of runway left before the baby's born and then at that point if you want to make that your primary focus that's understandable now granted there are plenty of other fighters who have kids uh especially on the man on the men's side since they're actually not the ones getting pregnant but to me it seems as though that was just sort of like a side reason and that the bigger reason for him is that he just felt like he has enough money now where he's comfortable with the money he's made um he's done enough where for him beyond winning the featherweight title and becoming like the first guy to win win titles in three divisions like what is it what, what's in it for him to to accomplish now that he's won an olympic gold medal now that he's won the flyweight title now that he's won the bantamweight title he's defended both titles i i guess for him he feels like he's accomplished enough he has enough money uh, to live comfortably and just the stress of being in this sport just isn't worth it to him and he feels like that's it with that being said, because it seems like a lot of his issues are more just with him being like, look, I've, I've done everything I need to. Like, what, what, what more is left for me? It does seem like 
if the UFC were to make a, a very lucrative offer to him that he might consider it, it doesn't seem like this is one of those things where he's like dead set on it. Like I, I in no way I'm ever going to come back to MMA again. I'm not going to train again. I'm just want to be done with the sport. Like it doesn't feel like that's the case. Um, but I do believe that at least for the next probably like six months, 12 months, 24 months, even there's a very high likelihood that he won't be back. Now, with that being said, immediately, if your champion is saying I'm retiring, Dana White has to be like, okay, well, if you mean it, we're going to have to take your title away. Are, are you okay with that? Seems like, uh, from the way that Dana was talking in the post-fight press conference, that Henry is okay with that. He is going to give up the title, and the UFC is going to move forward. Uh, with the UFC moving forward, that would mean that Peter Yan is going to be fighting for a title sometime soon. Uh, it should be against Aljamain Sterling. I don't know who else the UFC would be looking at, but Dana White did mention in the post-fight conference that Yan is definitely in there. Uh, so the question would then be, who's he fighting? It would probably be between Sandhagen and Aljamain Sterling, and I would figure that Sterling's going to be the guy who makes the most sense. Now, granted, I think it was like a month ago Sterling mentioned that given his training situation, he doesn't want to take any fight until all these lockdowns are removed. If that's actually something that he's going to stick to, then you're probably going to have to get, put someone else in there instead of Sterling, because Sterling's not going to be able to put forth the training camp that he needs to. Sterling is also based out of New York, which is the worst-hit state in the country, so that can make things difficult for him. Uh, with Yan, I'm not sure if he lives in Thailand or Russia, um, but Fight Island has been talked about for that. So for him, even if he can't get in the U.S., Fight Island might have to be where they, they book the fight. I can't imagine that anyone from the U.S. is going to have difficulty getting to that island, um, but it, it will be interesting to see if if Sterling's going to be the guy there. Also worth mentioning, since Cejudo is saying that he's retiring, uh, when he was a a freestyle wrestler. He won the Olympic gold, I believe, at age 23. He was 21 or 23. I think it was 23. Um, but at that point, it looked like he had plenty of time left to, to win world titles, to win another Olympic title. Uh, could have gone back and decided that he wanted to move on at that point and moved on to MMA and accomplished great things there. So we do know that he's willing to retire early from a sport that he's on top of and not exactly look back. Granted, he has taken some wrestling matches since then. Uh, took a wrestling match, I believe it was in 2015, against Tony Ramos, who was a Division One national champion at the University of Iowa, did make the U.S. world team on a no in a nominal Olympic year, um, but hasn't had much success in recent years. Uh, ended up retiring from wrestling pretty recently after not being able to make the 57-kilogram spot, which is 125.5 pounds, uh, after losing to Thomas Gilman. Uh, but Dayton Fix has also been giving him difficulty. Fix made the team last year. Gilman looked like he had a decent chance of knocking off Fix this year. Uh, but you also have Spencer Lee in the mix and some other really good guys. There was some talk in the Embedded that Henry Cejudo was thinking about maybe coming back to wrestling. I don't know that he would actually want to go back to making 125 pounds or doing the 57 kilograms. If he did, though, um, again, it's sort of tough to say based off of a result from five years ago, but it seems unlikely that he would make the U.S. Olympic team um, as far as him returning to MMA. What's interesting is that when he went from wrestling to MMA, at least he was going from sport to sport, and he was going from a sport where he could apply his skills from one end to the other, uh, whereas now he's talking about the next thing he wants to do is real estate. I don't know Henry Cejudo personally. I haven't really heard him talk much about real estate. I don't know if real estate's one of those things where he's actually like genuinely interested in developing land and selling, or if he just thinks that real estate's a decent way to make money and that's what he wants to focus on because he thinks it's a good way to make money. If it's the second option, uh, there's probably going to be a lack of passion there, and he'll notice that over time, and maybe he'll want to come back to MMA and do something he's more passionate about. If he actually is genuinely passionate about real estate and that's what he wants to completely focus on, then I guess, hey, maybe maybe that's what's next for him. Uh, but he's definitely got enough money in the bank. I don't know that he's a big spender. So for him, if he's frugal enough, he, he's got plenty of money to work with right now, especially if he invests a lot, um, even if it's just like basic investments in like general mutual funds. So for him, if, if he wants to be done, he can be done.
but it, it does seem odd that the next step for him is going to be real estate, and it's not going to be something where he's applying his skills from MMA into something else. And with that being the case, it does seem as though there's a chance that maybe at some point, um, whether it's a money thing where he gets get, where he's given a lucrative offer, or maybe it's just a, a realization that he wants something that he's a little bit better at, or maybe something that he's a little bit more, um, I'm trying to think of what the right word would be, something that he just finds a lot more enjoyable for him, um, more fulfilling. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what will draw him back to MMA, but it seems like for now he's done and the legacy he's leaving in MMA is, it, it's definitely a great legacy on paper, especially uh, when you look at the wins he has over TJ Dillashaw, who was considered the best Bantamweight ever, um, a win over Dominic Cruz, where if you didn't think that TJ Dillashaw was the best Bantamweight ever, you probably had him, uh, but now he's got that win over Cruz. Marlon Moraes is a very difficult guy to, to handle, uh, has a recent win over Jose Aldo. Cruz is able to beat him and beat him with a badly injured ankle coming in. Had the win over Demetrius Johnson. Granted, not everyone agreed with the decision. I definitely don't agree with the decision, but he did get that win and broke Demetrius Johnson's streak. So if this is it for Henry Cejudo, absolutely a Hall of Famer. Uh, definitely a Hall of Fame career. It's going to be tough as fans uh, when we have to look at GOAT status for the flyweight division, but especially for the bandweight division, because oftentimes people like to look at total number of wins rather than just looking at it from a standpoint of uh, take the best version of one fighter, take the best version of the other fighter, put them in a ma- put them in an octagon, who wins? Um, but if you're going to have the, the argument in that way, take the best version of Henry Cejudo versus the best version of anyone else, based off of the results we've had from him, <laughs> there, there's a good chance that even now you could say that he's the GOAT of the bandweight division, but over time, even as new guys come in, it seems as though Cejudo could have that spot for a while. So, great career for him if this is it. Um, I, I guess just congratulations. Hopefully, you do enjoy real estate. Hopefully, you enjoy what's next in life. Um, but if not, hopefully, we see him again soon. Um, if he does decide to come back, it'll be interesting to see what draws him back. Is it going to be a dominant bandway champion where that goat conversation comes up and he decides, you know what, I'm going to prove to everyone that I'm better than him and always have been? Is it going to be that fight against Alexander Volkanovsky he had talked about before where maybe he wants to? be quadruple C, be Olympic champion, and then three division champion in the UFC. Um, that's another option for him. So we'll have to see where he goes from here. But it, it was an entertaining fight. It was nice to see Henry Cejudo in this fight make a big adjustment to his game with the kicks, um, do something that we hadn't seen a whole lot from him in past fights, but to see him make that adjustment, to be effective with that adjustment, um, to do a pretty good job of timing Cejudo as he was coming in, uh, was landing some pretty big punches even before he landed that big knee. Um, a lot of great things that we saw from Cejudo in this fight that that are worth remembering, and if this is it for him, in some ways it's sad. Uh, in some ways, you kind of wish that his final performance, he would have had a, a crowd cheering him on, and really something that he could really celebrate a little bit more, celebrate with more people. But if this is it, congratulations to him, great career. All right, finally, I can go through the rest of the card uh, now that we've gotten through the two title fights. Uh, so the fight before the first title fight uh, between Cejudo and Cruz was Francis Ngannou and Yarzinho Rosenstreich. Ngannou had taken almost a year trying to get another opponent because given that he's so high ranked and given that a lot of people don't want to fight him it's tough to match him up uh so after Jorginho Rosenstrike had a really quick rise through the heavyweight division uh had a late win against Alistair Overeem he decided to call out Francis Ngannou now from a ranking standpoint is that a good idea yes if you get the win depending on timing you might be an interim champion but if not you're going to be the number one contender um but matchup wise it's it's going to be difficult now granted Jorginho Probably, I, I think, based off the fights I've seen from the two, I would say that Jarzino is the more technical striker than Francis Ngannou is. Uh, Jarzino hits incredibly hard, so you'd figure, hey, this is a guy, yes, he's going to be very dangerous, but if I can be more technical than him, uh, 
then I'll, I'll probably be more effective in landing my shots than his, and I'm confident that if I land on him, I'm going to be able to take him out. Uh, that, that definitely makes sense going in. Uh, but this fight lasted a little under 20 seconds, and effectively what, 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 what went wrong for Rosenstroik is that after throwing a kick, um, sort of backing up, kept his head up out of the pocket, and both of them were just throwing wide punches. Uh, Rosenstroik's were kind of more straight-arm wide punches, whereas... Um, or Francis Ngannou had more of a more of a hooked hook on it. Um, so I guess the way to describe it is that if you take like the angle of Rosenstrike's arms, like they were a lot closer to 180, whereas uh, Ngannou's were closer to like not exactly 90 degrees, but kind of curl a little bit more than that. But as a result, those punches were finding home a little bit quicker, uh, given that they were hooking shots. And so though Rosenstrike was throwing hard, Rosenstrike was throwing hard, moving backwards uh, with wider shots, whereas Ngannou was moving forwards with crisper shots. They both actually landed in that exchange, but Ngannou had a lot more leverage on his shots, and as a result, when Ngannou got hit, didn't really do a ton of damage. When Rosenstrike got hit, he collapsed against the cage and then took a few more shots on the ground while Ngannou was just giving him everything he could until the ref would not let him throw anymore. Um, but really quick stoppage. Doesn't do much for Francis Ngannou. Makes him a good amount of money. Um, he's still a number one contender in the division. Uh, that's been solidified for Rosenstrike. I mean, I don't know that it really moves him down. He was ranked below Ngannou in the first place, uh, but it's a tough loss for him, and you, you figure it'll put him out of training for a little bit, but you, you figure he'll get back to it and he'll still have a, a top-ten opponent in his next heavyweight fight, but really dominant win, and you'd like to see Francis Ngannou get a title shot sometime soon. He's definitely earned it. It's just a matter of getting the timing to work between Cormier and Stipe right now, and if they think that fight's going to happen, that's going to be the fight they make next. If they do make it next, it's going to probably be in a few months from now, so that means that the winner of that fight wouldn't be ready for quite a while, so Ngannou's probably going to have to find someone else to take a fight with him. Maybe that's Alexander Volkov. But for Francis Ngannou, just had to get a win here to, to keep his spot. Not only did he get a win, but he got a really dominant win. And so for him, he's still top guy in the division who isn't fighting for a title right now. And depending on how things work out, if is not able to take a fight sometime soon, they might have to do Daniel Cormier versus Ngannou, which surprisingly Cormier was talking like it was something he was willing to do. I figured that with Cormier, it was either going to be Stipe or Bust or Stipe or Retire, but I guess for him, it's not just Stipe. It's it's getting that heavyweight title and retiring on top. So for him, if he has to fight Francis Ngannou for the title, uh, that's the fight they'll make. It's going to be a difficult fight for Stipe, or not for Stipe, for, for Daniel Cormier. Uh, Stipe has more technical boxing than Cormier did and was able to use it early on in that first round. Um, for Cormier... If he tries to exchange with Ngannou the same way that Stipe did, that could be difficult, but Ngannou's not an easy guy where if you're just going to run ahead and not throw a single punch and just try to shoot on him and take him down, you, ha you have to set up your shots. Uh, you're going to have to get his respect with your punches first before you do take him down. Stipe was successful in doing that, and that's why he was able to get the win there. And a lot of the damage that he was able to do in the first round after landing some pretty good shots um, led to Ngannou getting exhausted and making the takedowns easier in the later rounds. But in the first round, if you're not giving something for Ngannou to respect on the feet, it's going to be really difficult to take him down. It's going to be really, really dissatisfying if you're not able to hold him down. And so it's it's not going to be the easy match, but I think a lot of people expect it to be for Cormier. So if that's the matchup we get, uh, don't be surprised if Ngannou gets a win, especially if he gets a quick one. Um, and especially if he gets a quick one after having defended successfully at least one or two shots from Daniel Cormier. Next fight on the card was Calvin Cater versus Jeremy Stevens. Um, really good back and forth fight. Cater got his nose busted earlier on, early on in the fight, um, but in an exchange in the second round, uh, was able to land a really big, 
right elbow on Jeremy Stevens, dropped Stevens with the elbow on the ground, really good round pound, including a, a left elbow that opened up a huge gash in Stevens' forehead. Uh, correct stoppage there to stop the fight, and Calvin Cater got the win, so now he's solidified himself as a top 10 featherweight. Uh, a guy who I've talked about a lot is a guy who I think has the potential to be a champion, especially if he gets the right matchup against the right champion at the right time. I figured he'd be a really difficult matchup for Max Holloway. That isn't going to be the title fight right now. Now, granted, Holloway is going to have a shot against Volkanovski. Holloway potentially could win that fight. I think a lot of people are down on Holloway for that fight. What I noticed in that first fight is that over time, Holloway was making some good adjustments, and that's why he was doing better in the later rounds. Now, granted, Volkanovski was injured in the later rounds as well. But to me, Holloway is one of those guys who always starts slow, and then as he makes his, read on his reads on his opponents, that's when he starts to heat up. Uh, he's had five rounds to make reads on Volkanovski. Volkanovski is definitely going to make some adjustments heading into the next fight, but I think that the rematch between Volkanovski and Holloway is going to be a more difficult fight for Volkanovski than the first fight is. And if Holloway does get that win, and then he's able to solidify that belt and be the champion for a little while, Cater could be one of those guys who's going to give him a difficult matchup given how good his boxing is and how much power he has. First fight on the main card, Greg Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro. Jorgen had a pretty good strategy in terms of the leg kicks. One of the interesting things about this fight is that normally with Greg Hardy fights, Hardy apparently, just based off the way his opponents react, it seems as though he's just incredibly powerful even for heavyweights. And so a lot of them just tend to cower around his power. They don't try to stay in the pocket. They don't try to like slip a punch and then try to land their own. They just try to get the hell away from him. And that's why we've had some really awkward-looking finishes with him um, where guys just kind of cower and try to avoid his shots. With DeCastro, he wasn't afraid of Hardy's power at all. He was willing to get in there and mix it up with him. But his strategy was more based around countering Hardy than just trying to charge his way in and enforce his own shots. So as a result, it kind of put him in a position where he was having to wait on Hardy's attacks uh, and then try to find his own. For the most part, if he was generating his own offense, it was just from the outside with leg kicks. And those leg kicks were pretty effective until the second round when he broke his foot, going for one that got checked. Um, but for Hardy, Hardy looked pretty solid here, but a lot of things I've talked about with Hardy in the past, obviously I mentioned that his jiu-jitsu looked terrible against Crowder. Uh, we haven't seen much of his jiu-jitsu since then, so we don't know what kind of improvements there are there. Um, his wrestling, again, sort of hard to tell because you have to have someone actually try to wrestle him and do a decent job of doing so. Uh, but the striking, he still is throwing a lot of single shots. They're getting a little bit more crisp, but again, he, he tends to keep his hands down. That still was the case in this fight. Uh, he tends to come forward and throw a single shot at a time. Uh, the rare exception is if he throws a single shot and you just stay stay in place and just kind of freeze there, then he might throw a few more than that. Uh, but outside of that, it's generally single shots, oftentimes the jab. Uh, sometimes lead with a cross, occasionally lead with a kick if you want, if he thinks he's going to time you circling out. Um, but again, it's, it's mostly single shots for him. And for that, he was pretty effective in this fight in terms of landing those single shots, uh, even if he missed. Uh, given that he had the reach advantage on DeCastro, who's oftentimes able to get out of the way, DeCastro sometimes would try to swarm forward and, and throw really hard really fast. Uh, occasionally, shots did land, but a lot of times he was just out of range. Uh, but since DeCastro was waiting on Hardy, and Hardy oftentimes would just throw a shot and then get out, throw a shot and get out, it was making it difficult for DeCastro to land his shots, but for Hardy, since he was constantly leading the dance, he was able to, to get his shots in. So Hardy was able to pick up the win here. Uh, but it's definitely a legitimate win for Hardy to, to beat Jorgen DeCastro here, and I think at this point, as much as I hate to say it, because I don't think that Greg Hardy's a very good fighter, just in terms of his technique, can't argue that he's UFC, or cannot argue that he's not UFC level, though. Given the wins that he has, the wins, the wins over Juan Adams, uh, Smolyakov, I guess, had a pretty good record outside the UFC. wasn't that great in the UFC. Uh, you have this one as well. Um, had a win against Pensasoli, depending on how much you want to credit the credit the inhaler, but at least from a performance standpoint, outfought Pensasoli. Like, he's UFC level. Is he 
strength level? I don't think that. Uh, it definitely would... In the fight with Alexander Volkov, the lack of technique definitely showed. I would figure that a lot of the other top guys are also going to be able to, to make him look pretty bad as well. But he, he's definitely a problem for some of the lower-level guys in the UFC. He's definitely a problem for lower-level UFC guys. Um, so for him, he's kind of getting to a point now where so long as he doesn't keep getting injured, he did have that injury in the Volkov fight, and I'm not sure how his leg's doing after this fight. Um, but as long as the injuries aren't racking up for him, he, he's starting to get to a point where he's building some momentum and he might be able to work his way up and get close to that top 15. And I mean, look, from a skill standpoint, does he belong anywhere, anywhere near the top 15? No, but he's definitely a bigger, stronger, more physical guy than a lot of the other guys in the division, and sometimes that can make up for a lack of skill, and that's gotten him this far. And Is he at some point going to be able to make the top 15? I would hope that at least by that time he's developed from a skill set standpoint where that's palatable. He's not quite there yet, but I got to say he, he's he's done a little bit more than I expected him to do at this point. On the prelims, we have Anthony Pettis versus Donald Cerrone. Um, pretty solid fight for the most part. Uh, both of them were landing some pretty big shots. For the most part, Pettis was landing the bigger shots specifically with his hands. Uh, Cerrone did a pretty good job of taking a lot of those heavy punches that Pettis was landing. Uh, some decent kicks in there as well. I know Pettis was looking for that body kick that he won the first fight with. Uh, Sorin defended pretty well there. Um, there was a weird moment, I believe it was in the second round, if not the third round, I think it was the second round, where Pettis had landed an eye poke um, with his thumb, and the ref didn't see it, so he's like, all right, look, I, I didn't see it. you got to go on. It looked like it was a punch. Uh, so at that point, Pettis wasn't going to wait and be like, hey, you know what, actually, I got you. Just take your time. Pettis was like, no, this is clean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going after you. So started this awkward moment, but at least for Cerrone, he was able to weather the storm. A uh, moment late in the third round, Cerrone landed a huge uh, right switch kick to the head of Anthony Pettis, and he ate it like it was nothing, which was crazy because it was a really hard head kick. Um, but both guys were landing some pretty good shots. It was a really entertaining fight, and Anthony Pettis got the win uh, by a final score of 29-28 on all three judges' scorecards. The prelim before that was a fairly disappointing fight. It ended up being a split decision win for Alexi Linick versus Fabrizio Verdum. Verdum had been off for two years um, after a suspension for for um, banned substances. I would say steroids, but I don't remember if that's the type of substance it was or not. Uh, but whatever the case may be, man, those two years just did not look good for Verdum. And obviously the two years don't help. You, you kind of have to wonder, like, Verdum was never one of those guys where you watch him like, wow, this is a really athletic, um, quick twitch um well-conditioned fighter but in this fight it was just like even worse and it's like one of those things where it's like god if this is if this is what he looks like without it man like that's that's pretty rough um, but just not a good performance from him at all the, the most surprising part to me was that he had a lot of really dominant positions where i figured that he could get the finish on alenic and it's not just that he didn't get the finish but it was like the the decisions he made that led to him not getting the finish oftentimes when you get on the back um he wasn't doing a great job of maintaining that position and like trying to focus on controlling the position before going for submissions um, sometimes he wouldn't even like go for submissions all that closely. It seemed like for him, once he got the back, the rear naked choke was something to look for, but it's not something that he expected to get. Uh, but the arm bars were there. Uh, there were times where he was falling off of um, Alenix's back, and he wasn't like trying to grab an arm bar as he fell off. Uh, there was a time that was really surprising to me in the second round where he went for an arm bar on Alenix, and Alenix's arm that he was attacking, I believe it was Alenix's left arm, was almost free, as in Alenix... So let's say your left arm is getting armbarred. Your right arm, oftentimes, you're going to be using your right arm to secure your left arm and, and keep that grip. And as long as that grip isn't broken, it's going to be difficult for your opponent to isolate that arm and start extending on it. Olenek didn't really have a grip on his right arm with his left arm that was being attacked. And for whatever reason, Verdum shoved that left arm back in towards um, Olenek's right arm so it would be easier for Olenek to grip it. 
Uh, it was sort of tough to tell from the camera angle, camera angle if the reason why is because he didn't have one of his legs over Elenik's head, so he felt like if he went for the armbar at that exact moment, that Elenik could roll out of it. I'm not sure if that was the thinking there. But if you are going to be attacking these armbars, if you are going to be okay playing from guard, it, it just seems like at that point, your your better bet is to try to attack the arm at that point and try to um, get your leg over the head in that, in that process rather than trying to secure the leg over the head while you're in a spiderweb position and then try to break the spiderweb uh, from there, especially since the U.S. having trouble doing that in the past. So some really weird decisions by Verdum that led to him not getting finishes, some really weird positional decisions that led to him losing really dominant positions. Um, and as a result, he ends up losing this fight here by split decision. Uh, fight before that, we had Carlos Barza versus Michelle Waterson. Um, gotta be honest, this fight sort of bored me, and I was sort of focusing on a couple different streams at the time, so it's tough for me to say who I thought won. Uh, each of them had their moments. I know Esparza was able to take Waterson down at times. Uh, wasn't doing a whole ton on the ground when she did so. Uh, for Waterson, just really didn't seem all that eager to close the distance oftentimes on the feet. Uh, would, would throw some kicks and some punches with no setup and just completely far away. Um, I, I wasn't hanging out with my friends in terms of being in person, but we had like an Xbox party going, which I thought was kind of funny, which I, I guess a lot of people now use Zoom, but we were just doing it uh, via Xbox where we had a party where we were all watching the fights together. Uh, unfortunately for us, we had different times on our streams, but we were, we were talking throughout the entire time, and one of the comments that I made to one of my friends who I trained with is that that fight reminded me of like a warm-up drill that I would do in my MMA classes before all this um, coronavirus crap happened, uh, where the warm-up would pretty much just be like where, where you're shadow boxing with your friend, uh, so you're not actually like trying to like hit your training partner, but like if they throw a jab, rather than like a shadow box where I'm assuming that my invisible partner throws a jab and then I slip out of the way, like in this case, the person in front of me actually is throwing a jab, but they don't actually like hitting me, but I'm still trying to go through that same motion of slipping out of the way. Uh, it, it kind of felt like I was watching one of those warm-up sessions rather than watching an actual fight. It, it doesn't look more like a sparring match than an MMA fight, uh, but Carlos Barza did get the win by split decision. Fight before that, we had Vicente Luque versus Nico Price. Uh, looked like it could have been fight of the night, although obviously with Gaethje versus Ferguson on the card, you figured that was that'd be difficult for it to hold up throughout the entire night. Obviously, with Ferguson and Gaethje getting the fight of the night, that was the case. Um, but Nico Price was landing some really good shots early. Uh, Luque was landing some pretty good shots as well. But late in the third round, Luque landed a huge left hook to Nico Price's right eye. It looked like it broke his orbital. Broke his orbital. Uh, sort of a delay for Price uh, from when he went down. So it's sort of my my best guess based off what I saw is that. Price didn't go down because he was like rocked so much as he went down because he was just in a lot of pain and kind of like had to take some time to recover. Like there's sort of like a weird delay on it, uh, but whatever the case may be, he was still defending himself at that point. Um, had the doctor step in to take a look at it, the eye was completely swollen shut. I know it's easy to say, hey, look, Nico Price would have fought for another minute and twenty seconds. Uh, he had eighty seconds left. Let him finish the fight. But the doctor's supposed to stop the fight when you can't see out of your eye. He definitely could could not have seen out of his eye. I doubt that Price was going to do anything to change the course of that fight. I think he still would have lost the fight had he had another had he had another 80 seconds. Um, but on the other end, Vicente Luque could have landed a few more shots to that eye and really done some serious damage that would have taken even longer for it to heal, assuming it ever heals, um, depending on the damage that could have been done. So I say it's the right decision that they made to, to stop the fight at that point. Um, best for Nico Price's career. It was still a very entertaining fight. Uh, good for Luque for him to get another win, uh, get back on a... Or, I'm trying to think of how the time works. I think that his last fight was against Wonderboy. If his last fight was against Wonderboy, then now he's he's back on a winning streak, even if it's just one. Uh, if he's had fights since then, well, I guess at least now he's starting to get on a streak again. On the early prelims, we had Bryce Mitchell versus Charles Rosa. 
surprisingly dominant performance from Bryce Mitchell, especially given that Rosa has a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu. I don't remember what Mitchell's belt is. Uh, I think Mitchell primarily focuses on Nogi, so belting tends to happen more in Gi than Nogi. Um, but really, really good performance from Bryce Mitchell here. Um, was very effective in his takedowns. It's not as though his wrestling life looked amazing, but he was doing a really good job of timing them off of Rosa's strikes. Uh, and then once he would get on top, uh, very good at passing guard. Really interesting to see how he would constantly attack for that twister. Pretty close to getting it a couple times, especially at the end of the second round where the, the time ran out just as he was attacking it. But for it to be 10-8 for every single round, I think it's pretty safe to say so. Like he was, he was definitely dominating each round to the point where Rosa wasn't getting a whole lot of offense off, wasn't landing any significant strikes, uh, wasn't really offering a whole lot of danger in terms of submission attacks of his own. Had a couple moments where it looked like he might have had a shot at, at a couple leg attacks, but didn't really fully commit to them. And I mean, it's understandable. I think one of the dangers of committing to a leg attack, especially if you don't have it, is that you're giving up your back. And given the danger that Bryce Mitchell presents once he's on your back, especially if he gets uh, that one hook in, maybe it's just not worth it to, to go for that. And that's what Rosa felt. So great performance from Bryce Mitchell. He moves to 4-0. He should be getting his camo shorts now, according to Dana White. So that's, that'll be cool for him. Uh, I'll have to find something else to talk about in the post-fight press conference. I guess he can always shout out Arkansas regardless. But it was, it was one of those eye-opening performances where it's like you kind of thought of him where it was like, yeah, he's a decent striker, pretty good grappler, decent enough wrestler to get the fight into the places that he wants it. But after this fight, it's like, wow, this guy's actually a little bit more serious than we thought. So for him at featherweight, there are definitely definitely going to be some interesting matchups for him. I think a lot of people want to see him against Ryan Hall based off of how this fight went. Hall's got a matchup with Ricardo Lamas. Um... I don't think Bryce Mitchell, Bryce Mitchell is ranked anyway, so for Ryan Hall right now, he wants to fight against ranked guys. Uh, so if we are going to get Mitchell versus Hall, Mitchell's probably going to have to beat someone else ranked high uh, to get himself ranked, at which point, if they're both ranked, then I think that fight will probably make enough sense for Ryan Hall to take it. Uh, but in the meantime, I don't know that we're going to get it. Be a great fight if we get it, though, because Bryce Mitchell showed me a lot that I didn't think he had in this fight. Um, so before this fight, the idea of him fighting at Ryan Hall would have sounded, rid sounded ridiculous. I still think it kind of sounds a little bit ridiculous for him to fight Ryan Hall. I think Ryan Hall has definitely got the edge there on the ground, but I didn't think he'd look this good against Rosa, so it'll be interesting to see how he looks against Ryan Hall. It was another interesting thing that before this fight, Jaime Canudo, um, a black belt world champion and brother of Renato Canudo, is also a very highly successful black belt competitor, had a really good match with Gary Tonin at ADCC, has a win over Gary Tonin as well. Um, I, I guess shouting out Hanada Canudo doesn't necessarily help my point, but point being Jaime Canudo is also a very legitimate black belt, but before this fight, Jaime was talking about how Bryce Mitchell was incredibly underrated on the ground and the toughest UFC fighter that he's he's grappled with, so maybe there's a little bit more to Bryce Mitchell than meets the eye, and if we do get that fight with him and Ryan Hall, uh, he could definitely send a huge message to the rest of the featherweight division based off of how he does there. And then the first fight on the card was Ryan Spann versus Sam Alvey. Uh, Spam was controlling the fight early. Very, very successful in landing his straight right hand. But for him, he figured that on the ground he would have a much bigger advantage than he would on the feet. Uh, he figured he'd probably have an advantage on the feet, but Alvi's also dangerous there, so he decided that he wanted to make most of his focus getting into the ground. So even though he was landing some pretty big right hands early on, uh, he would use the right hands to set up his takedowns rather than just going with that success and just continuing on and seeing if he could get the knockout. Um, but he was definitely doing enough to win the first couple of rounds. Um, late in the third, he got clipped and was definitely in danger, but was able to survive there and win the fight two rounds to one and get the win over Sam Alvey. <clears throat> so that covers it for UFC 249, or at least for the actual fights. Uh, a topic to bring up that I didn't bring up in that recap on purpose is Daniel Cormier talking about how a couple of different fighters had mentioned in their post-fight conferences that 
they had heard what Cormier was saying and they made some adjustments during the fight. So obviously with there being no fans in the crowd, any noises in the arena are going to be much easier to hear. Uh, so the fighters can hear each other's corners pretty easily, uh, but they can also hear the announcers. Some people think that if you're a cornerman, you should have to like whisper so your opponent doesn't hear you. In most martial arts, your opponents are going to hear you. Even in the UFC, like if you're grappling with someone and their corner is telling them something, like if they're close enough to hear their corner, you're close enough to hear their corner. So it's not as though like this idea of one fighter being able to hear their corner while the other fighter doesn't is like a real thing. But when there's no crowd, then both fighters hear the corners. Like both both fighters are going to hear the corners regardless, assuming they're both relatively close to each other. And given that's a fight, they're generally going to be pretty close to each other. So I don't think that that's a big deal there. Um, but normally you're not going to hear the announcer, uh, whereas you are in an empty arena. The two fighters who mentioned that they had heard and made adjustments were Carlos Barza and Greg Hardy. Greg Hardy's adjustment was checking the light kicks, and Carlos Barza, I believe, was more based around takedowns um, and, and just trying to force more takedowns. I don't remember exactly what it was, but she was saying that she had heard something from Cormier and made an adjustment based off of that, and that was effective for her. I, I guess the first step that came to my head with this is if you're needing Daniel Cormier to, to give you just general advice like that, you might want to reconsider who's in your corner. Like, for Greg Hardy, I, I don't know what his corner was saying. It's not like I could hear it. But if no one in his corner was telling him to check the kicks and it took Daniel Cormier mentioning it in the second round for Greg Hardy, be like, oh, that's a good idea. I should probably check these leg kicks. Like, maybe not the best sign for Greg Hardy's corner. I, I don't know that that's the case because, again, Greg Hardy's got an American top team corner. I don't think that they would put put some guys in his corner who don't know to check leg kicks. But I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, same for Esparza. Uh, if whatever adjustment that... Cormier was making there if if her, if her corner couldn't come up with it as well that's that's one of those things where it's like well well thank you right now Daniel Cormier for helping me but maybe I need to reconsider who's in my corner but the general idea of that I, I, I think for the most part assuming that fighters have competent corners is it possible that a an announcer could say something that could affect the way that a corner sees things or affect the way that a fighter sees things definitely but for the most part these adjustments should be made by the corners and if you're a fighter and your corner is not giving you good advice and you're relying on an announcer or you're needing an announcer to to offer fight saving advice for you um hopefully you go back and and, and take a look at who you're going to put in your corner for the next fight next up to talk about is the single fighter who did pest positive for the coronavirus and that was jacare souza um first off i guess it's worth note worth mentioning jacare was asymptomatic at, at the event uh, as far as we know, he's not really dealing with too many difficult symptoms right now. Uh, a lot of people who do get the coronavirus are, are asymptomatic and don't really have a hard time with it, so we don't know that Jack Ray is going to have a really tough fight ahead of him. Uh, Hodger Gracie did have the coronavirus and had a tough, had a pretty bad. Obviously, he, he survived. Um, but for Jack Ray, it's tough to tell whether he's going to have to deal with a really bad flu in the coming weeks or if it's just one of those things where he's going to test positive, but it's not really going to affect him all that much. Either way, obviously, you want to hope for the best for him and hope that he's doing well. This is a virus that is not very lethal to people his age, uh, especially to people in his physical condition. You do kind of worry that... I, I guess for me, I don't know when exactly he came in. We, we got this news on a Friday night after he had weighed in, which I think is probably the most worrying part about this. If they bring all the fighters in, say, like on a Monday or on a Tuesday, let's just say like three days ahead of weigh-ins, and they have tests and they have results like three days ahead of weigh-ins, if a fighter doesn't have, or if they don't test positive three days ahead and they follow all the quarantine rules, they, they shouldn't have it three days after. So for Jacare, what I'd like to know is when exactly did he get it? 
because when you are cutting weight, you're definitely weakening your immune system, especially for the time being. And if you have to fight something like the coronavirus and you're going to weaken your immune system throughout a weight cut, that can be a pretty dangerous position to be in. Seems like he's fine. So I think for him, he'll be okay. It, it seems decently possible that he's going to have an asymptomatic case. He's not going to have it too bad. Um, but it definitely is something to, to be concerned about for the fighters where if you have it, you would want to know that before you really start getting into the hard parts of the weight cut, uh, especially when the final 48 hours. So hopefully moving forward with the card that we have on Wednesday and then the cards that we have moving forward beyond that, if these fighters do have it, that they know that they have it and they're not beginning weight cuts and weakening their immune system while they already have it. Um, but the decision to move forward, was that the right decision? I say absolutely. Um, again, for most of the people involved in this event, if they get it, it's not lethal. I don't know. I, I guess some of the commissioners are sort of like at that age where you might say, hey, look, uh, maybe we need to protect you a little bit more. But I, I think for the most part, these fighters, if they get it, yes, we hear a lot of bad stories. Just the news is going to pick, them, pick apart every single possible story of like the person who's 30 years old who died with the coronavirus. And by the way, if you see a headline that says someone died with the virus rather than of the virus, before you say, oh my God, I can't believe this, I, I would, I, I guess first step would be to put an ad block on because you don't want to give these guys extra money for their clickbait bullshit, but you'd probably want to read that story and figure out the difference between with and of, because with would mean if I have a heart attack and I also have the coronavirus, I died with the virus. If I was perfectly healthy and the coronavirus caused my death, I died of the coronavirus. So with and of sound very similar, but there is a big difference there. And a lot of stories bring up the with rather than the of. And it, it definitely breeds a lot of more fear. So for Jacare and for a lot of these other fighters, if they catch it, it it's going to be uncomfortable for them. But given what these guys often deal with um, in, in terms of injuries, in terms of other skin infections that will come up, uh, like staph, does coronavirus rank like on the top, in the top five of the worst things they're going to deal with? That's hard to say for some, yes. Uh, I think for Hadra Gracie, it's probably a yes. Um, but for a lot of others, it's no. So I, I guess keep that in mind. But it was good to see that Jocker is the only one to test positive. Um, it seems like everything has gone well with the event. It seems like everyone's okay. Um, obviously, with these events, given that this is a two-week virus, it's going to take a little while before we can fully say, okay, everything went perfectly. But in the meantime, things look pretty good. Uh, we did have that event after pretty much every other sport shut down in Brazil on March 14th. And there were no problems after that. Uh, so if we can get something similar here where there are no problems afterwards, hopefully that can be a great sign. But it seems like a lot of people are pretty inspired by the UFC having this event. I think it's going to help build some momentum for other sports. And in two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at, what would that be, the 23rd, um, March, May 23rd. If we have no cases or, or, or no bad stories of people getting, catching the coronavirus from the event and, and dying or getting put in positions where they're in the hospital, I, I, I think at that point for other sports, they're really going to have to look at that and say, you know what? There are ways to do these things safely. Uh, the UFC made it work. Maybe it's time for us to try to find a way to make it work, too. Next topic is going to be UFC's Wednesday card that is coming up. Um, I, I guess they're all technically UFC Jacksonville. Uh, UFC Fight Night Smith versus Teixeira. Uh, but Smith versus Teixeira is going to be the main event. Uh, so pretty interesting matchup between two top contending light heavyweights. Uh, Teixeira, lately in his career, hasn't looked quite as good as he had a, a few years back. Uh, still has good power on the feet, but it seems as though he's a little bit slower. Uh, but it's definitely a, a danger on the ground. Uh, once he does take the fight to the ground, um, very good top game. Um, pretty solid passing guard, very good top control. And once he finds your back, it's pretty good about finishing from there. Anthony Smith is a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so if he does get taken down, um, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to finish than a guy like Carl Roberson, for example. But 
Teixeira definitely has a route to winning if he's able to get Smith down. Granted, it's not easy to get Anthony Smith down. I think for the most part, we're going to see this fight on the feet. I would imagine that Smith's going to try to fight out, fight, fight from range here. They both have 76-inch reaches, but Smith tends to fight a little bit longer than Teixeira does. So my prediction would be that Smith is going to try to take this fight from the outside for the most part on the feet. Uh, if they get inside, he'll try to work some elbows in as well. Um, but I would predict that Anthony Smith's going to get the win here in the main event. In the coming event, we have a heavyweight fight between Ben Rothwell and Owen St. Pru. Um, fight before that, Drew Dober versus Alexander Hernandez. Um, I th I'm a pretty big believer in Drew Dober in this fight. I'm, I'm going to be putting some money down on Drew Dober. Uh, Hernandez is one of those guys where he burst on the scene really quickly with a, a knockout of Benil Dariush, who was ranked at the time, uh, which put Hernandez in the ranking at that point. He's had some decent performances since then, but really hasn't done enough to the point where I feel like he's a legitimate top 15 guy in the weight class. Uh, was supposed to fight Islam Makachev before Makachev was taken off the UFC 249 card. Um, but for him, he, he's going to fight a guy in Drew Dober who should have the advantage on the feet. And so for Hernandez to win this fight, he's going to have to try to take Dober down and control him on the ground. And Dober's just a huge guy for the division. Um, pretty much everyone he fights is going to fight that exact same way. He's pretty good about dealing with that, that sort of strategy. And I think for that reason, Dober is going to be able to keep Hernandez off of him and is going to be able to win this fight from the distance. And Probably get a knockdown, or probably get a knockdown in the first round. I would say, and maybe get a finish there. And if not, um, in in the later rounds, either knock him out or just dominate from the feet and be able to to cruise to a decision win here. Fight before that, we have Ricky Simone versus Ray Borg, uh, battle of bantamweight grapplers, um, who are both pretty wild and pretty aggressive. Neither of them like to stall uh, when they get to the ground; always looking to improve position. So that's gonna be a fun fight to watch. And then we have Carl Robertson versus Marvin Vittori. On the final fight of the main card, in the prelims, we have Felipe Lins, former World Series of Fighting champion, versus Andre Olovsky, Michael Johnson versus Tiago Moises, Sajara Eubanks versus Sarah Morris, which is just a rough fight to look at from a record standpoint. Five and four, Sajara Eubanks versus six and six, Sarah Morris. We got Gabriel Benitez versus Omar Morales, Hunter Azure versus Brian Kelleher, and Chase Sherman coming back to the UFC, uh, had a pretty rough run at heavyweight, uh, fighting against Isaac Villanueva. So that'll be the Wednesday card, the Saturday card that is coming up, uh, just to run through the fights on that again. The main event is Alistair Overeem versus Walt Harris. It'll be Walt Harris's return after having the initial fight between Overeem canceled after his stepdaughter was kidnapped and killed. Um, then we have Claudia Gadelia versus Angel Hill. Dan Ige versus Edson Barboza, which is just going to be a banger. Uh, Eric Anders versus Christoph Jocko which I believe is a return to middleweight for Anders. Uh, and then Song Yudong versus Marlon Vera, which... I, honestly, I, to me, that's probably the most interesting fight on the main card, in my opinion. Um, but that's going to be a really good bantamweight fight. On the prelims, we got Matt Brown versus Miguel Baeza, Anthony Hernandez versus Kevin Holland, Mike Davis versus Giga Chikadze, Darren Elkins versus Nate Landwehr, Courtney Casey versus Mara Romero Barella, another tough record one, 8 and 7 versus 12 and 7, and then Rodrigo Nascimento versus Dante Almeis. Um,. So last thing to talk about is going to be the return of professional grappling. So IBJJF still has not returned. Um, I think for a lot of the tournaments that rely on competitors to, to bring in most of their money, it, it's going to be a while. A lot of gyms still aren't open yet, e even in places where they are starting to open. Like it's not as though these are like states that generally put forward like giant groups of people to train or to tr to compete. Like, there are areas like the Midwest, like Chicago, has a pretty good grappling scene. Houston has a decent grappling scene. California's got a giant grappling scene. Um, but it doesn't seem like a lot of the, the big areas where these tournaments tend to come fairly often are 
are all fully back, and as a result, if if not everyone's back to training, it's gonna be tough to to get people to come into tournaments where you're relying on most of your money to come from competitors. So for the IBJJF, they're not back yet, and it might be a while for grappling industries. They're not back yet; it might be a while. Um, but in the case of Fight to Win, they do super fight shows. Uh, so for them, they just need to get a handful of guys, and they're they're, they're paying their fighters. Normally, most of their money comes from selling tickets. I'm not sure what the revenue stream is going to look like here. I know they are going to be streaming this event on or the events on Flow, uh, so they're going to make some money from Flow. But I think for the most part, unlike the UFC, where most of their money comes from distribution. Fight to Win isn't quite at a point where the distribution of their events makes more than the gate. So it'll be interesting to see how they do this. They're doing smaller cards, uh, but they are putting some good fights on on the top of these cards. So looking at the main and co-main events, on the Friday card, which is going to be Fight to Win 139, the main event is going to be Cyborg Abreu versus Vinicius Trator. Cyborg, multiple-time Black Belt World Champion. Um, has done very well in Nogi. He's won ADCC. Uh, also Nogi World Champion this year. Uh, versus Vinicius Trator Ferreira. He got to the finals of ADCC and lost to Gordon Ryan at his weight class. Didn't do the absolute, um, but also won Nogi Pans at Black Belt. And I believe is also a Black Belt uh, Nogi World Champion for the IBJJF. And then another Black Belt World Champion for the IBJJF in the coming event is Johnny Tama. He'll be fighting Ethan Kralenstein, who is a, a really good Black Belt out of John Donahue's camp. On the Friday or on the Saturday card, the main event is going to be AJ Agazarm returning against Osvaldo Quinchino. Quinchino, uh, I believe, is a Black Belt World Champion, although it's been a little while for him. Agazarm won a Black Belt World Nogi title. It's worth mentioning, for Nogi championships, the premier championship to win is ADCC. Uh, granted, it comes every two years. In the Gi, the premier championship is the IBJJF Black Belt World title. The IBJJF also does Nogi tournaments, but their rules are not... I guess liberal is the word you could use in terms of being more open. Um, but ADCC, pretty much everything goes. And IBJJF, you can't reap in Nogi. You can't do heel hooks in Nogi. And obviously, heel hooks are a huge part of the Nogi game. Uh, but with that being said, they still do their Nogi World Championships. Uh, the IBJJF is still a very big a, a very big tournament. So to win the Nogi World Championships, you're still going to have to beat some pretty good guys. And AJ Agazarm was able to win one of those at Black Belt, which is, is definitely something you have to give him credit for. But... He'll be facing off against Cachino in the Gi. And then the coming event is going to be Roberto Jimenez. Um, had a fantastic run at Purple Belt where he won his weight and the world, er, and the absolute, submitting everyone. Had a pretty good run at Brown Belt, including a Nogi World Championship. Um, recently got promoted to Black Belt. Got a win over Keenan Cornelius, but he'll be fighting against Gabriel Almeida, and that fight will be in the Gi. So, lots to look forward to this week. On Wednesday, we got a UFC card. Friday, we got Fight to Win. Saturday, you got UFC. Saturday, you also have Fight to Win. It's been a while since we've had some some live combat sports. We've I guess we've had um, submission underground in the meantime as well on Fight Pass. Uh, since I don't have Fight Pass, it's been tough to watch that. And they're sort of it, it's not. I don't know that I want to like rip on them necessarily, but the EBI rule set is one that's in some ways is not very popular. EBI itself is is decently popular just because of who they're able to get on those get in their get in their tournaments. Um, they've gotten Gary Tonin a lot in the past. They've gotten Gordon Ryan a lot in the past. And so a lot of the prestige of the tournament comes down to who's in the tournaments, but the rule set itself is one that still isn't super popular in the jiu-jitsu world. And so I think in some ways it sort of hurts. It, it hurts the popularity of Submission Underground, where you just kind of feel like it's a bunch of exhibition matches. They don't mean a whole lot. Uh, but for Fight to Win, their rule set's a little bit more open, where it, it's kind of judged at the end, like, hey, if no one if no one wins by submission, like we'll we'll judge it based off whoever was attacking more but 
I, I feel like that that rule set and that setup has been a little bit more popular among him, among Jiu-Jitsu fans and has been a little bit more meaningful to them as a result. So it's going to be nice to get Fight to Win back. It's obviously nice to have UFC back. This last card was great. Enjoyed it completely. Uh, look forward to the card on Wednesday. Look forward to the card on Friday. Look forward to being able to recap it all for you in the next episode and previewing more to come.